Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and I'm a, health, I'm a certified holistic health and nutrition coach. And today we're broadcasting live from Malibu, California. And this afternoon, I'm interviewing Dr. Thomas Cowan, co-author with Sally Fallon Morell of the new book, Nourishing Traditions of Baby and Child Care. And we're going to be talking today about how to, how to have a truly healthy pregnancy and care for your child from infancy throughout childhood. And we'll be touching on subjects like diet, vaccinations, breastfeeding, natural remedies, and much more. But before I get started, I have to do a little disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature and is not intended to diagnose, cure, or heal any disease. So please consult your healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment I or a guest suggest on this show. And if you like what you hear in today's show, please give the podcast a nice review and rating in iTunes. This will help people around the world to find the show easier and get my word out on health. And I would appreciate it so much. And Dr. Thomas Cowan, our guest today, is a founding board member of the Weston A. Price Foundation and co-author with Sally Fallon Morell of the new book, Nourishing Traditions of Baby and Child Care. And he is the principal author of another book, The Fourfold Path of Healing, which we'll uh, get into a little bit in the show. And he also writes the Ask the Doctor column in the Wise Traditions in Food, Farming, and Healing, uh, and the Healing Arts, that's the Weston Price Foundation's quarterly magazine. So good afternoon, Dr. Cowan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. So first, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, okay, so I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, which gives me a certain kind of uh, infamy these days. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, went to college at Duke, uh, which I hated enough so that I got out in three years. Uh, then I went to the Peace Corps and taught gardening in Swaziland, Southern Africa. Uh, then I went, it was there that I actually uh, met anthroposophy and biodynamics and the work of Weston Price, interestingly enough. And then I went to medical school at Michigan State and did family practice training and pretty much have had my own sort of uh, anthroposophical and then more holistic practice for about 30 years. Most first in New Hampshire and then the last ten years in San Francisco. Well, and so you're you're a founding member of the Weston A. Price uh, Weston A. Price Foundation. Sorry, I don't know why I can't talk today. <laughs> so, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how you um, decided to co-found this uh, this amazing organization? Well, I decided to co-found it which isn't really right. Sally founded it, and she asked me to be on the board. To, oh, okay, sorry. Uh, I know board members and founding members, different thing. Yeah, if if you if you uh, did a percentage of who did how much percentage of the work, Sally did 99, and generously speaking, I did one. Okay. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to put us on equal footing there. 
Yeah, uh, basically, uh, you know, it's just that I think that the general theme of what Sally has done and is doing and the whole Western price direction is sort of crucial for uh, everything as far as, you know, how human beings and the rest of the beings on the earth are going to survive. And uh, I tell people that, you know, when one looks back on one's life and thinks, what did I do that really is any good? I'd say the thing that I'm most happy about is I there's a number of farmers and small food processors, meaning people who make things like sauerkraut and stuff, who who have told us and me that their business is only surviving because of the Weston Price Foundation. Wow. And, in fact, even biodynamics, which was in the curious situation, uh, biodynamics, which is the kind of uh, – sort of the precursor of the whole organic movement by Steiner. And one of the principles of the biodynamic movement is that the manure of the cows particularly is the crucial thing for fertility. Crucial. There's no other way around it. And the biodynamic farmers were in a kind of curious position that they, they they, they had farms and gardens with cows, but yet most of their clientele were vegetarian. So so they were really losing a whole lot of money and opportunity because their most, you know, essentially their most valuable product, their people didn't want to eat. And when Sally came around and the whole sort of principles of, of Western Price, which is really uh, in contradistinction to the whole vegetarian movement, they suddenly had a huge market for their most valuable products, and it basically economically saved them. Yeah. So when I think about what they have done and what I've contributed to, I don't know how much I contributed to that, but when people say, you know, without that organization, my farm never would have made it, that to me is a valuable thing. Yeah, I'm thrilled that grass-fed farms and grass-fed meats are becoming so popular because it is. It's so important for our health. And, and yeah, I know and the health, the health of the world too. Because if yeah. yeah, if we don't have grasslands, we don't have anything. Yeah, yeah, and I uh, I had the same experience myself. I was vegetarian for a couple of years after reading the China study, and my health tanked uh, within just two years of that diet. So I just I don't know how people are doing it long term. They're just kind of denying their their body and their health and its their cravings and whatnot. Um, but let's right. get into a little bit about your new book. Um, it's called the Nourishing Traditional Nourishing Traditions of Baby and Child Care, and um, you co-wrote it with Sally Fallon. And can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, so Sally wrote a book called Nourishing Traditions, and then we co-wrote a book with uh, uh wonderful man named Jamin McMillan called Fourfold Path to Healing, which was sort of about, of about adult medicine. And so some years ago, Sally said, well, we should do, um, you know, a nourishing traditions or sort of fourfoldish type book about children, except nourishing traditions <laughs> sold a lot better than fourfold. So we should call it nourishing traditions instead of fourfold for children. 
Yeah. Which I thought was a good idea. Uh, so, so that started, I don't know, seven years ago or so. Uh, frankly, uh, again, continuing my theme with Sally, I'd say 90 plus percent of the research and the really amazing uh, information she has on diet and pregnancy care and ultrasounds and all that, all, all that is from Sally. My, mm-hmm. my contribution was really uh, health care for children. And so not that I'm not taking responsibility for the whole book, but that the things that I really know about have to do with health care for children, diet for children, but but treating sick children, plus things to do with vaccinations and and all that. And and I would say the other thing, the other reason I agreed to do this uh, was I, I have a very specific idea on, I guess you could call child raising, or I don't know if that's quite the right word, but I got the opportunity, I think it's 200 and page 206 or maybe 203, I not, don't remember exactly. There's a, there's a little sidebar called The Serious Business of Play. And mm-hmm. of all the things that I've ever said and written in my life, that's the most important three paragraphs right there. So I was okay. really interested in writing this book to get that statement out there of, of you know, what I call why people, parents shouldn't play with their children. Uh, yeah, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So I, I partly got this because I, I have been around Waldorf schools for many years. I was a school doctor for three or four different Waldorf schools. Uh, Waldorf schools are like biodynamic schools. They're started by Steiner, and they have a much different kind of curriculum and and all. And to a certain extent, my children went to Waldorf schools. And I've been around Waldorf schools for years, although not anymore. Uh, and as a result of that, I went to a workshop by years ago by a, I think it was, she's Danish. I'm not sure about that. A woman who is presenting her ideas on child rearing based on her 30 plus year work at a kindergarten again I think it's in Denmark but I'm not sure and it's just uh, very much in, in in alignment with what I had come to the conclusions of which I think is so important because I see so many parents not doing this and, and to their to their and their children's detriment so one of the best examples is, so they have this kindergarten, which is ages uh, nine months till seven years old. And the first thing is that they spend about 90% or more, even no matter what the temperature or the seasons or the climate, the weather is, basically outside playing. The only time they come in is they come in for lunch, and then they have a story, which is, told, not read by one of the uh, adults who work at the school, and then they go back outside, they have a nap, they go back outside, and they play till they go home. Uh, one of the biggest hallmarks of the school is they have this huge tree uh, in the middle of their yard. It's basically in a pretty rural place, so there's streams and rocks and trees and animals and all kinds of stuff. And 
they have this huge tree in the middle of the yard. And the only rule they have, it seems, at the school is nobody is allowed to help anybody else climb the tree. So apparently, and she showed pictures of this, if you take a snapshot at any one time, you'll see the six-year-olds sort of 30, 40 feet high in the tree. They even built a little uh, tree thing. Uh, and the two-year-olds and the one-year-olds are sort of sitting under the tree, walking around the tree, circling the tree, talking to the tree, et cetera. And sometimes they go for years or a year or six months or whatever uh, before they can actually climb the tree, the little ones. And nobody helps them. Nobody says, here, I'll give you a hand. Nobody tries to teach them how to do it. They just wait. And then the only thing that happens is if they someday they climb the tree, which they apparently all do, and then basically everybody cheers. And that's sort of uh, it. And uh, when, you, when you think of that, uh, children uh, have their own rhythm, and what they mean as playing is something totally different than adults mean. So usually if somebody wants to, quote, play with their children, what they what they really do is try to teach them. They teach them to throw a ball. They teach them whatever it is. Because in a, an adult consciousness is so much different than a child that they don't, they just can't understand the concept of play. In other words, adults don't know how to play anymore. Yeah. And children do. So they... They take their time. They, whatever they're thinking, I don't know what it is, uh, but that's the kind of people that we want, people who can spend even a year just circling a tree, talking to the tree, being in their own child's world, um, not being interfered with by adults. The adult's role, as, as in this kindergarten, is to do things like make applesauce and make bread and weave clothes and and, you know, activities that are needed to run people's lives. And then the children can participate in that if they want. And, again, you don't teach them to make applesauce. You just make applesauce, and children then participate if they want. This whole teaching, playing with, instructing ethos that we seem to have earlier and earlier is just, Poisoning the children. Really? And I, to me, uh, teaching a child basically anything, uh, what you do with a child is the child has, they develop their own interests. And if you present a rich world to the child, they will have a ton of interest. And they'll ask you, how do I make applesauce? How do I dig in the garden? How do I plant a seed? Uh, maybe, or they'll figure it out for themselves. And if they ask you, you tell them. You plant a seed like this. And it becomes such a, a richer interaction with your child. There's, I, I see parents all the time. In the space of a half an hour visit, they tell their child no about ten times. Nine and a half of them, the children don't pay any attention to what the parents said. And another thing that goes along with this is I tell parents, first of all, you should say no to your child 99% less than you do now. Yeah. And if, <laughs> they, if you they just do ignore say, you anyways. 
But if if you do say no or say it like don't, like don't run in the street, you be damn sure they don't run in the street. And because if you do it like that, first of all, they always listen when you say no because they know that you are are respecting their sense of dignity and their privacy and even their ability to know what's right for them. They respond to that respect by doing what you say. And it's just such a wonderful way to be with a child and let a child find their own way. It's the opposite of the ADD culture, which is, you know, put a child in a walker before they can walk and teach them languages before they know anything and teach them to read when they're three and this whole preschool and, you know, the the more we teach people, the stupider and less educated they get. Yeah. I mean, I have read so many articles about how uh, just playing, just free play is so essential for a child's brain development and growth. Absolutely. And not with adults. If you play baseball with a child, you're teaching the child to play baseball. Yeah. That's different than just throwing a ball. Now, I'm not saying you can't throw a ball with your child or if the child, you know, like if with my grandson, if he comes up to me and shows me a stick, it's not like I ignore him. I say, thank you for showing me the stick. <laughs> but I don't teach him, like, how to make sticks or how to play with blocks. He knows that perfectly well. If he wants me to join in, I'll do it because he's a sweet guy and he asked me to do something and I'll do it. And if we just did that with the whole school, which instead what we have is this forcing, coercing energy. We're going, we know what's best. We're going to teach these children to build blocks, build Lego, whatever it is, and the whole thing just doesn't work, and you end up with miserable children and miserable parents. Yeah, and actually I had my daughter going to a Waldorf school. Um, she was doing the infancy program, and, you know, hopefully at some point when she's old enough, we'll be getting her into the Waldorf school because it's such a wonderful program. And I loved that aspect of the program where they did not say no to the children. They just redirected them to something else, or they told them what they could do, like put your feet on the floor. You don't put them on the table. Or, you know, they just it was just a redirection, and, the children are so well-behaved. No one is screaming. No one is acting out and crying. It's just such a different way of approaching discipline, per se. Yeah. Just to say, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of respect for Waller schools, but uh, personally, even they have too much of this teaching energy for me. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, they're all different and, you know, I I think there should be even less because the children that I, that I see who really their parents really make a commitment to getting away from this you know what I would call teaching energy or no energy is just really different mm. just really happy <laughs> children who play on their own for hours everybody's yeah. happy the adults do what they need to do they do the laundry or whatever Children even join in or not, and everybody's fine. 
Well, why don't we talk a little bit about your book? Um, why did you feel that it was important to write a book about infancy and child care? Well, because like this this example, and there's many others, uh, what I see now I think is, you know, I don't know if I would use the word an abomination, but there's another side to a lot of these things, including, you know, I mean, obviously a big one is vaccines and uh, the whole concept of how do you treat a sick child you know, the conventional medical model is just so skewed and so one-sided that I thought, well, you know, somebody has to tell a different side. Yeah, and so you, you detail a lot of diet tips for pregnant women in the book. Uh, what are some of the dietary recommendations that you won't find in other baby books? I mean, the whole point of nourishing traditions, and this is just an extension of this, is humans uh, basically biologically are programmed to eat a certain way, uh, which is a mixed diet, properly prepared food. And when I say mixed, I mean combination of animal foods and plant foods uh, and uh, liberal amounts of good fats, since that's how we build nervous systems and have hormonal health, which is different than some people say low-fat and vegetarian and vegan and all that stuff. The other hallmark of this is nourishing traditions is about the proper preparation of food. You know, this food has anti-nutrients in it, um, you know, grains have phytic acid, they have enzyme inhibitors, and then when you soak the grains, you get rid of that, you make the food easier to digest and more nutritious. So what we're really teaching is about the nature of food. Uh, another thing that's vital is, you know, we now are just beginning to understand the importance of what some people are now calling the human microbiome, which is the gut flora or the type of bacteria and microorganisms that live in the gut. This is basically our immune system. This is what the child swallows on the way through the birth canal to establish their immune system and establish their digestion. That's why we have two days where we're eating, when right after we're born, where we're eating a non-nutritive food, meaning colostrum, whose sole purpose is to is to establish the gut flora. That's the only purpose of colostrum. So, mm -hmm. uh, so nourishing traditions, one of the hallmarks <clears throat> is on <clears throat> the regular daily consumption of fermented, otherwise known as cultured food, things like yogurt, kefir, kumis, sauerkraut, dikavas, you name it. And as I often point out to patients and people, it's no accident that the same word that we describe how humans organize themselves into social groups is the same word we use to how to prepare food to establish a healthy gut flora and immune system. And that word is culture. So we live in a culture and a proper culture has people who share a similar gut flora because they have similar 
techniques of processing their food. And interestingly, the, the research is now showing us that uh, we have five to seven pounds of good bacteria in our gut, and we have more microbial cells in our gut than we have human cells. So literally more of the DNA enclosed in your physical space is actually somebody else's DNA. And that's why people like the French or the Inuits or people, they are literally a culture because they they have similar similar DNA in them, literally, because they have a similar gut flora. And again, that is your immune system. That's the thing that protects you from having uh, so-called leaky gut or inflammation in your gut, which allows foreign proteins to enter your blood, which is what, why we get allergies. So in the United States and other Western cultures, most people live their entire lives without ever once eating a properly cultured food. Not only don't they eat that, they don't even know what it is. And they don't say anything about that in baby books, even though it's arguably the most important aspect of eating is to maintain is the care and feeding of your gut flora. Yeah, you're right. I've read 20 baby books when I was pregnant, and not once did they mention strengthening your immune system or gut flora with probiotic foods. Right. Because, and yet it's the most important thing because you're trying to establish your own gut flora, which is your own immune system, and that will directly impact the baby's immune system and gut flora. And so to leave that out is, you know, well, it's typically American uh, because we don't have a culture. We, we don't live in a culture, not, not in any effective sense of the word. And that's reflected in, the, in our total lack of understanding of even cultured food. Or if you want to say we live in a culture, it's a pretty dysfunctional one. Yeah, and it's common that pregnant women are told not to eat fish. Do you agree with this? No. I mean, there's obviously some fish that have less mercury than others, but the whole mercury thing is also, to to a certain extent, you absorb toxic nutrients. It, It all goes back to the gut flora. If you don't have a healthy gut, you can't process literally anything. And if you do have a healthy gut, even things like small amounts of mercury, uh, and and there's even if you go to Vital Choice uh, website, they have a lot of information on the the lack of accuracy of the mercury-fish connection. Okay. So fish is a good food. Obviously, all the food today is somewhat tainted because of, you know, our environmental agricultural practices. But I wouldn't eliminate that source of food. Okay. Yeah, it does, on its face, it never seemed to make sense to me because it's such a, you have to have omega-3s to build your child's brain. But I, I get avoiding tuna and things like that. But right. I just wanted to clear that up. Clear that up. Um, so how do you think a vegetarian diet affects the developing fetus? Not, not positively. I mean, for, for, I mean, 
It depends, I guess, what you mean. If a vegetarian you mean with lots of eggs and, and raw cultured dairy products, then it's fine. But if you mean a vegan diet, then vegan diets are too low in proteins and fats, usually too low in calories. That's basically what you do when you're trying to detoxify or fast. A vegan diet is basically a fasting diet, which is why for temporary purposes, if you're basically overfed with toxic substances and you have you know, basically a toxic body, if you do a fast, you'll get better for a while. But, uh, you know, the history of nutrition is we basically eat animals for building our bodies and plants for phytonutrients which detoxify and, you know, have these special chemicals which, you know, are antioxidants and et cetera. So the typical traditional ratio is something like half. Half of the food is bodybuilding, brain building, et cetera. The other half is vitamins, minerals, uh, phytochemicals, detoxifying agents, et cetera. That is consistently across basically all cultures that have been successful. That is the lesson of Weston Price. To, to confine yourself, especially when you're literally trying to build a body, like a new body, which is what pregnancy is, to only the non-bodybuilding part of the diet, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I, there's, it's strange. There's a few baby books I read that promoted a vegetarian and even vegan diet while pregnant. I just, this is, I just thought it was crazy. Um, yeah. But luckily, you know, I don't know. But well, I'll, I had an interesting thought that, you know, Weston A. Price, I found it really interesting that he didn't find any vegetarian cultures. And he actually right. tried to look for some traditional cultures that were vegetarian but just did not find any. Right, because they don't exist. Yeah, and it just makes sense that they don't that that diet does not support life in the long term and doesn't support reproduction. That must be why. Exactly, but even more so, and this is one of the huge issues that isn't so much talked about in normal uh, either medical or diet circles, but and, and it's. To me, it's the it's sort of the ultimate irony, and I would refer anybody who's listening to a place called the Savory S A V O R O S A V O R Y Institute, Savory Institute, and there's even a talk on TED by Alan Savory, the founder, and basically uh, what he's saying, and I, I would say literally proving is that basically we have a problem of we're desertifying the earth, which is a fancy word for we're turning the earth into a desert. And this has happened uh, for, you know, over the, over the history of agriculture to the point where there's already deserts, like Iraq, which used to be the Fertile Crescent, and now it's happening like in Kansas and all kinds of places. And the only thing that reverses that is large amount of herbivorous animals uh, grazing on the land. So the other reason why you don't find this in traditional cultures is that is 
is in order to have a, a truly sustainable land base, you have to have herbivorous animals grazing the land. There is simply no other choice. And so just for ecological purposes, the irony of this, of course, is there's all these people running around saying that because of global warming and because of environmental destruction, we should all be vegetarian. It's, of course, exactly the opposite. And for people who don't know about that, just think, for example, of the Great Plains in the United States, which were basically from Minnesota to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains, this expanse of, of grassland. And when the early settlers got there, they all said the topsoil was 10 feet deep and there was literally millions and millions of buffalo and other grazing animals. So then 100 years of, of converting this grassland into corn and soybeans and wheat, which is exactly what the vegetarians tell us to eat, grains and beans. Then it became a dust bowl. There's almost no topsoil left, and the whole thing is desertifying. And the reason I say this in this context is, is the, only way to the only way to maintain and now restore this is to put back the buffalo. There's no other way. You can't compost your way. You cannot solve this problem by growing more grains and beans. That's why we have this problem. And therefore, humans, and here's the sort of big lesson, humans are part of that system. The native people knew they were made of buffalo. The buffalo were made of grass, and this whole cycle continued. We are made of herbivorous animals. They're fat and they're their protein, that's what builds our bodies. And if we do that, we participate in the rejuvenation of the earth. And if we don't do that, if we only eat the wheat and the soybean part, we participate in the destruction of the earth. And the way that I look at the world is there's no way, there's no theory that makes any sense to me that we can destroy the world and yet at the same time that's healthy for us. To me, that's an insane way of looking at the world. And because we're part of this big biological process, what builds the soil builds us. Therefore, even if it was bad for us, which it can't possibly be, that there is no ecological case for destroying the, the, the world's uh, soil by growing more annual grains and, veg and beef. Yeah, there's no denying the cycle of life. And it's interesting, right. I, I interviewed uh, Leara Keith, who wrote The Vegetarian Myth a few podcasts right. ago. She went uh, extensively into that concept, and it's just so enlightening to hear that that eating, not yeah. eating is not going to save the earth. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the aspect in your book about breastfeeding. Um, why do you think breastfeeding is so important? Because I think so many people are fooled into believing the marketing campaigns of companies that make formula and thinking formula is very similar in nutrition to breast milk. Yeah, 
I mean, the principle here is I I talk about and think about the, what I call the biology of complexity, which goes along with the most important thing I ever learned in medical school was the first day guy got up there and he said, just remember that the dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest nephrologist, which is a kidney doctor. Yeah. And if, if, you, think, if you think about that, the, to, to eat a carrot and then have it go through your process and then go into your kidneys and you decide, your kidney decides what nutrients uh, from that carrot should be reabsorbed and what should be excreted in the urine is an incredibly complex thing, which no human being has any clue. And the, and the way that I know that they have no clue is the best that they could do is dialysis, which makes people crazy and they die anyway. So it doesn't really work. That kidney, meaning dialysis, is a lot dumber than even a really sick kidney. That's why even the nephrologists don't want to put even a sick kidney on dialysis until there's basically no kidney. So the the point of it and, and why that's an answer to the question of formula versus breast milk is for me, we know so little about real biology, about the complexity and the interactions and what it has to do with the food you eat and the emotions that the mother and the father and everybody has and the emotional connection between the mother and the baby. There's so many parts of this which are complex. And to think that Nestle's or some company, which, by the way, actually doesn't even have your baby's best interest at heart, and if you don't believe me on that, read the history of Nestle's as a company, and I think you will absolutely be convinced that their number one priority is by no means the health of the children, by no means. So, But even if they did, let's say there was a really good company, even then, they still know one one-hundredth at best or one one-thousandth of what that whole interaction and how to make breast milk. So anybody who says they're the same is just, <laughs> it's just so ignorant because they're obviously not the same. And Yeah, I think it's interesting. Whatever, whatever chemicals are, are the same are just coincidence or just because you picked a few chemicals and in your feeble way of looking at it, you think those are the most important chemicals, which you have literally no idea. Now, I would admit they've got it good enough so that you can kind of raise a semi-normal child, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that on a, a formula bottle, there's 10 ingredients when a breast milk has 400 ingredients that we know of. Like We don't know everything that's in breast milk. Exactly. You don't even know. We don't even know what's in a piece of grass. And to say that they got everything that's in there is just—it's just ludicrous. Yeah, and I and like the that right the book. I love. Yeah, I love that the book has um, uh, has recipes for formula to make formula at home. If by chance you're not able to produce enough milk or none at all. 
Right. And even the formulas, which one, of course, is always reluctant, but yet it happens, and I've seen it, and I've seen babies raised on those formulas, they still take advantage of complexity. I mean, cow's milk is a lot more complex, especially if it's raw, grass-fed cow's milk, is is as close to a complex system as you can get to breast milk. It's totally the opposite of these hypoallergenic formulas, nutramogen, et cetera, which are basically made in the minds of chemists, which I never trust. Because they don't know. They can't know. It's too daunting and complex a task. Yeah, they're basically just these milk compounds with sugar in them. It's really frightening. Yes. So um, one of my personal areas of interest is vaccinations uh, because my daughter is autistic, and I think vaccinations played, you know, a part, a contributing factor in her getting that diagnosis of mild autism. What is your take on vaccinations in the book? So here's sorry. Here's the story on vaccines. This is like uh, Tom Powers, everything you need to know about vaccines in hopefully five minutes or less. So number one, uh, we humans have two immune systems. It, well, at least two. And the one is called the cell-mediated response, and the other is called the humoral response, or cell-mediated immunity and humoral immunity. And cell-mediated means that we have this system of white blood cells that if you get a new invader, like a new virus, and because we've never encountered this before, the virus will infect, meaning get inside different cells, like of our respiratory tract. So you have infected cells which the white blood cells have to go after them, chew them up, and spit them out. And in the process, you get what we call being sick. Being sick means fever, flu-like symptoms, cough, runny nose, mucus, etc. And the important point to remember, and this is a really important point, is that what we call being sick, fever, flu, mucus, cough, rash, etc. that's because of our cell-mediated immune system. I can't emphasize that enough. The reason why I know that is because if you suppress somebody's cell-mediated immune system, like with prednisone, and then you infect them with a virus, they don't get, quote, sick, like fever, rash, cough, etc. They might even die from the infection, which is not likely, but they could, but they won't get what we re- normally call being sick. On the other hand, if you, can, if you give somebody the chemicals of their cell-mediated immune system, of which we know some of them now, so you can stimulate a cell-mediated immune response without any infection at all, no virus, no bacteria, no, nothing. Just stimulate their cell-mediated immune system, and they get sick. They have a cough and fever and rash and mucus and all the rest of it. So that which we call being sick is a cell-mediated response. It's triggered by a virus or a bacteria or other things, but it's not because of them. We make ourselves sick. Now, after you get 
the, the cell-mediated immune system clears the virus, and then your humoral, otherwise known as antibody system, remembers what happened. So next time you make antibodies, and it takes about four to six weeks, then if you ever encounter that same virus again, you tag uh, the components of that virus before it infects the cells, you clear it before it infects the cells, the cell-mediated immune system never needs to get involved, and the person doesn't get sick. And in fact, every naturally occurring uh, infection, for instance, chickenpox, has both of those arms of the immune system are involved. So you get infected with the virus, then you make a cell-mediated reaction, then you're sick for two weeks, then you make antibodies so that if you ever get that virus again, you will tag it before it infects your cells, and you'll never get sick again, generally speaking. So that's how the immune system works. There's always those both aspects, always. There has never been, until the 1940s, about a situation where you had the stimulation of one without the other. So that's what happened with vaccines. The whole point of a vaccine is to stimulate the humoral immunity, the humoral antibodies, without a prior cell-mediated response. Again, I can't emphasize that enough if you want to understand what's happening. <clears throat> this is never, as far as we know, this is unprecedented. So instead of if you get the chickenpox virus, the whole point is to stimulate antibodies because if they stimulated a cell-mediated response, then the parents would say, hey, you just made my child sick. I'm not doing this anymore. So by definition, a vaccination program is the attempt to stimulate the antibodies without a cell-mediated response. The other thing about this is in order to do that, because the body doesn't like to do that, you have to put irritants into the viral products to make the antibody system react. This is also crucial, because if you just put pure attenuated chickenpox virus proteins, the immune system wouldn't react. So you have to put counter irritants, such as aluminum and formaldehyde and mercury, and something to irritate the immune system into reacting. There's no way around that. Now, that's interesting because I thought they were just used as preservatives. Uh, they're used as adjuvants. Adjuvant means something that's necessary for the body to recognize and make a reaction. Okay. So, so this, the people who call, why don't we make better vaccines? <laughs> So, number one, the whole vaccine thing is to stimulate antibodies. Number two, because it's not the usual way the body recognizes it, you're going to have to do something uh, irritating to make it happen. There's no way around it. There's no, you know, when they call for better vaccines, the, the vaccine people just laugh because they know that people don't understand what this is about. So then 
the theory of this, and this goes back to people in the 40s saying this, that if you do this repeatedly to people, you will stimulate a situation of suppressed cell-mediated immunity and heightened antibody responses. That was the prediction. Why? Because that's the goal. So if you if you make a list of of the diseases that are characterized by suppressed cell-mediated immunity and heightened humoral immunity, you're talking things like asthma, allergies, eczema, autoimmune disease, including Crohn's, colitis, MS, uh, Sjogren's syndrome, Hashimoto's, etc. All of these are characterized by increased antibody production. That is what we mean by an autoimmune disease. So the question is, how did we go from, and I often tell people, ask your grandparents or parents, how many children did they know when they were in 1950 or 40 who had food allergies, eczema, and allergies? And the answer is basically none, because I remember when I was in grade school, we there was one guy with asthma, and we made fun of him because he was sick, which probably wasn't very nice, but... It was so unusual, like, how could you be sick? Now, it's anywhere from 20 to 40% of the children have some sort of chronic disease. So how did we get there? Well, all these chronic diseases are, are characterized by excessive antibody production. So how did we get that? Well, that was the point of the vaccination program. There he is. I mean, that's the goal. So how would you expect or why would you expect anything else to happen? Now, people will say to me, well, this has never been proven. But uh, interestingly, uh, there's a study out of Kobe University in Japan where they took, I think, uh, rats, maybe mice, and they put them on the standard American vaccination program. And they wanted to see if they could develop antibodies like autoimmune disease. And they found that at a certain threshold, they could consistently and reliably get animals to create an autoimmune disease by simply by vaccinating. Hmm. So this has been done in animals. So this, then the question is, well, why? But it's never been done in humans. But actually it has, and that's called the last 70 years. We did that. Yeah, there's a there's a reason the, the biggest subset of diseases is the fastest growing subset of diseases is autoimmune diseases. Exactly. That's because we're producing them. It's a growth industry. So people want yeah. to invest in something. <laughs> they should invest in the growth of autoimmune. By the way, uh, it's also interesting that why has there been such a growth in the number of, of diseases which we can now vaccinate, particularly in the last 10 years? Uh, uh, there's, it's been an explosion, and there's proposed to be at least 20 or 30 more diseases which we can vaccinate against. And, you know, part of the reason for that is the part of the U.S. Patriot Act, which I won't say much more about that. 
But the part that I'm concerned about is the called the Vaccine Compensation Board, where two things, people will probably remember that a part of that whole 9-11 business was the anthrax scare. As a result of the anthrax, the part of the Patriot Act made it so that companies that develop the vaccine, because they were saying, oh, the companies aren't developing new vaccines like anthrax, and they were all going to be dead from anthrax, even though that turned out to be from a U.S. government lab. But uh, so part of the Patriot Act was exempting vaccine manufacturers from any damages in perpetuity, meaning forever, uh, from from injuries caused by vaccines. So if you're Merck well, or... Yes. If you're Merck Pharmaceuticals and you make a vaccine and you kill 1,000 people, you cannot be held liable for the damage. Instead, the government set up a National Vaccine Compensation Board so that in return for your silence, because you have to, in order for you to get money to be compensated, you have to waive your rights to disclose what happened forevermore. So if you do that, they will pay you a certain amount of money, which they've apparently, it's not easy to know this, but they've paid billions. So that, it's a great business model uh, for the development of new vaccines because the rest of the drugs, if they, you know, make Vioxx and people have heart attacks, they get sued, and that's not good for business, and so that they don't want that. And so do you generally recommend against all vaccines, or do you think there are some that are okay? So here, here's what I will say over and over again. So there's, there's basically three issues. One is do they work, and uh, that – there's, uh, I can't remember the website, but I have it on my iPad. That has actually uh, was was from a JAMA Journal of the AMA study in 1999, looking at the incidence of vaccines from night from uh, the, actually the death rate from infectious disease since 1940. And what's clear is that the death rate was going way down before vaccines were introduced. So there's a question of whether they work. The second one is, what about these excipients, these adjuvants, mercury, formaldehyde, uh, um, et cetera, aluminum, et cetera? So all those are neurotoxins. And the third one, which is the one that I'm mostly concerned about, is, is the changing of your immune system. So what I tell people is, given those questions, um, I can't tell you whether or not to get a vaccine, but I can tell you that the way to look at it is you have to uh, think about the potential benefits, also knowing that whenever there's an outbreak or an epidemic of whatever it is, whooping cough or measles or, or et cetera, that at least half of the people who get the disease were already vaccinated. So, Number one, you have to think of the potential, if any, efficacy of the vaccine versus the known risk of, of injecting your child with a known neurotoxin and an immune-shifting drug. Like, that's not a question whether that's going to happen. 
that does happen. And it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of overt disease. But you cannot repeatedly vaccinate somebody and not expect a change in their immune system. So given that, which you just have to decide which makes more sense to you. I mean, I, 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 don't, I think it's a rational decision for somebody to say, yes, I know that giving my child the chickenpox vaccine will shift them more towards, you know, allergies, autoimmune disease, even the cancer spectrum of disease. I know it will create some neurotoxicity, but I'm not willing to live with the chance of them getting chickenpox. Fine. What, what I don't like is do the vaccine, they work great, there's no downside. I mean, that's a fairy tale. So as long as people have good information, I think, you know, they can make their own decisions. Yeah, I guess some of them, they just have a certain risk tolerance. Like I have a friend that she just could not live with herself if her child got one of these, you know, so-called preventable diseases like measles or mumps or rubella or whatnot. Um, but in my case, I just don't, there's not that many outbreaks of these diseases. I mean, you see some whooping cough and you see some measles here and there. You hear of like pockets. Well, I've, of I've never seen any measles. So I don't know what you've yeah. seen, but yeah, I, I, I have not seen one case of measles in 30 years of doing medicine. So yeah. I've read some things here and there. Shot is I don't. And so I mean, for me personally, I don't want my child because I I know so many people with autoimmune diseases at such young ages that for me the risk of chronic immune dysregulation and autoimmune diseases and cancer, we have a 50% cancer rate almost, is a much, much higher risk than these childhood right. diseases. That's my personal right. thing. Right. And, you know, the ultimate irony is the people who go on about herd immunity and you're putting our children at risk. So they, they vaccinate their children, so they're supposedly fine. And then they say, well, you're putting my child at risk. Why? Because they're vaccinated. If they then they sometimes say, well, but someday if everybody has it and then we wipe out the disease, then we won't need to vaccinate. Well, first of all, if there's no risk from vaccines, what difference does that make? And second of all, that never happens, except maybe smallpox. And no other vaccine has, even if 20 years of no polio in the Western world, there's not even any suggestion that they should stop vaccinating. This no. is... It's not going to happen. So there, there's, if they're so confident in these vaccines and they give them to the child, children and they have no consequences, no downside, what difference does it make? They should be fine. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so let's talk a little bit about the, the natural remedies that you talk about in the book. Um, it contains a large number of natural remedies for every imaginal ailment. So why did you feel it was important to detail uh, these natural remedies to care for your child when they're sick? Oh, uh, well, Sally wanted me to, so because <laughs> he, uh, her idea, and I agreed, obviously, was we want it so, you know, parent has a child with an ear infection, we we want to tell them exactly what to do. 
because if we don't, then they become at the mercy of whoever they're going to, and, and they may be going to somebody who has no options except um, conventional medicine. And, you know, if you take an example like ear infections, you know, there have been studies going back to the 60s that show that about 93% of ear infections resolve on their own without antibiotics. And in fact, most of Europe uses what's called the timing method, which is they see a child with an ear infection and they say, fine, uh, give it about seven to 10 days because that's what, how long it takes for most to resolve. And they only treat with antibiotics the ones that don't resolve in seven to 10 days. And they treat about seven, five to seven percent. Uh, American pediatricians, they give antibiotics on the first day, most of the time, although there recently was a call from the American College of Pediatrics because of the overuse of antibiotics and the widespread antibiotic resistance that it turns out antibiotics are not needed for most ear infections. So we wanted to give people an option. So if you have an ear infection, you could do this. Mostly it will get better anyways. Uh, but this might help get from 7% down to a few percent, and it helps maybe with the pain, and you feel like you've got something, some other reasonable approach to take to treat your children with when they get sick. So that seemed to be a good thing. Hands-on manual. I mean, our, our whole thing is empowering people to make decisions in their own in their children's behalf because neither of us have much faith in so-called experts. Yeah, and did you feel it was also necessary in part just because uh, pediatricians just, uh, their only arsenal that they have at their disposal is medications? And do you feel like that in some way because medicine is in part controlled by the pharmaceutical companies? Uh, it's Partly that, it's it's bigger than that. I mean, it's a philosophical thing. And, and the, what I mean by that is uh, medicine some 40, 50, maybe longer years ago actually decided to, that they didn't, they don't believe in the concept of cure. And what I mean by that is generally speaking, if you, if you, Think about what a cure is. That means you go to a doctor or somebody and he says, you have such and such, here, do this, do it for whatever period of time, a day, a week, a month, a year, and then you will be better. And then you won't need to take this stuff anymore. So that's what I mean by a cure. So if you have asthma, you would think that you would go to the doctor, he'd say, oh, you're not eating right, you're not sleeping right, you're not thinking right, whatever it is. You're not moving, you're not exercising, you have too much stress, uh, who knows. Uh, and then if you do this for a certain period of time, you won't have asthma anymore. But the amazing thing, and actually the sad thing, the sad commentary about our medical system, is if you go to the doctor, normal pediatrician, say, can you help me not have asthma anymore? They literally think you're crazy. Like, that's ridiculous. Of course, what you do if you have asthma is you take inhalers for the rest of your life. If you're really lucky, 
you might outgrow it. We don't know why that happens. It's not because we're going to do anything to you to help you outgrow it. But basically, we give you medicines to manage this disease for the rest of your life, no matter what disease it is. Asthma, eczema, high blood pressure, heart disease, cancer, etc. You're going to take drugs. Cancer is a little bit different. But you're going to take drugs the rest of your life. Because we don't know how to cure people of anything, and we're even derisive of that concept. I mean, just think about that. They they literally laugh people out of their office. If, well, don't you know anything? Like, can't you help me, like, overcome this? No. <laughs> we don't do that. So that's actually kind of crazy. I mean, that was medicine until the 20th century. People looking for and figuring out ways of curing people of sickness. I mean, as I tell people, curing people of sickness is hard work. It's tricky and, you know, because it's such a crazy world we live in, it's sometimes even not possible. But to give up looking and to have that not as your goal that's the really tragic part, but that's the situation. We don't even think that's a reasonable way to look at medicine anymore. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of looking at it. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective before. Yeah. Um, but why don't we talk about your other book, uh, The Fourfold Path of Healing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about The Fourfold Healing Laws? Because I just want to touch on that book a little bit because I think it's really, really interesting. I mean, you know, the fourfold healing just comes out of the idea that, um, again, things are complex and it's got to do with the way we live. And so we try to look at what are the components of how people live that affect their health uh, because it's, it, it's like Sally once said, you know, we think that you get a disease and then you get sick. Like, why are you sick? Because I have rheumatoid arthritis. That's what people say. You go to a doctor. Why do my joints hurt? It's because you have rheumatoid arthritis. The reality is you were sick, and then you got rheumatoid arthritis. The rheumatoid arthritis is just a description for the kind of, <laughs> of sickness that you already had that we then use the generic word rheumatoid arthritis to describe a particular constellation of events. So then the question is, what is that sickness? What are we talking about? Like, what, what was wrong with you before the rheumatoid arthritis? Well, that was basically, you know, not moving right, not thinking right, not eating right, and not doing the things that if you were starting to get off track, would get you back on track. So then we look for who knows the most about food, and that's Sally. Who knows the most about movement, and that's Jamin. Who knows the most about medicines, and I don't know who that is, so I got elected to write that part. <laughs> and then who, who knows the most about thinking, and we really had no, no idea about that, so we just kind of all wrote it together. And so it's just a way of, again, we have a blueprint of, 
you know, people who had no disease. I mean, that you know, it's been well documented that the, you know, Native people and that Price talked about and the Native Americans and in the plains, they had no disease to speak of. They they got injuries and some kind of infectious disease or bites and wounds and stuff, but otherwise they had no chronic disease like we have. No asthma, no allergies, no cancer, no heart disease. So based on that, you can come out, you know, you can answer certain questions like, what about movement? So question, did they, all, all those people who had the, this good health, did they just sit around and watch TV or did they go out and move their bodies in interesting and ver- varied ways? <laughs> so if if it turns out that all these people were healthy, all they did was sit all day, then I would tell people to sit all day. Because that's what works. The the truth of the matter is when you investigate, they all obviously had very active lives. Why? Because they had to catch fish and catch buffalo. And so you got to be in pretty good shape to get on a horse and flag down a buffalo with a, with a, with a bow and arrow and a, and a big stick. So, I mean, you better not be like fat and lazy to do that. Because you don't last long. So, you know, it became pretty clear that there are certain principles for right living to prevent disease and even to a certain extent treat disease, which is what that book is about. Well, and I have just one more question that I love to ask all of my guests. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in our world today? Uh, desertification, because our health comes from the soil and the ecology. And like I tell people, there's no way to have a system that's bad for salmon and egrets and microorganisms in the soil and good for us. That's the Western model. So we can poison the salmon and the egrets and all that's going to end up being good for humans. And that's that's insane, literally. I mean, only a crazy person would think that way or that thought. The reality is we have to have uh, a way of life. And the question, and I would actually, the person who I think writes the best about this is a guy named Derek Jensen, who I know a little bit. Every question should be asked, how does this play out for the soil and the salmon and the egrets and everything else? If what if my action here builds more soil, builds a better ecology, builds a healthier ecosystem, it's probably good. And if we don't do that, if we degrade the ecosystem anymore, well, it's already too late probably, but if if we don't have that is the only thing we think about there's no hope and even if we do there may not be much hope but it, it, that has to be the only guiding question for everything not how much money how many jobs you know that if we answer that question it, it addresses climate change 
political oppression, all the rest of this crap that's going on. Uh, the only question is, how does it play out for the ecology? More freedom, et cetera. And, it, and it's all sort of under the rubric of if you don't get it right, you, the earth turns to desert. And if you do get it right, the, dirt, the earth turns into a vibrant, you know, lush ecosystem. So the question is, which way are we going here? The yeah, human health part is minor. The human health part is overblown. We we spend too much time on that. Mhm. Yeah, and I agree with you. We need our grasslands. We need our cows munching on that grass, and we need to eat those cows. I agree with you. Right. So There's somebody said uh, a great quote. Just to finish, one thing we have to remember is that if we if right now all the humans were wiped off the earth, uh, the the earth would in a hundred years be a lot better off. If right now we wiped out all the insects off the earth, in a hundred years we'd all be dead. So just remember that when we think of what's important here. That's why I don't kill bugs. <laughs> So can you tell the listeners about your medical practice and where they can find you? You know, and what you're up to these days, what you're doing. Um uh my the way to find me is fourfoldhealing.com. That's all spelled out F O U R F O L D healing dot com and all my practice information and website and how to contact me and all that. So Basically, I spend my time talking to patients, growing food, and hanging out with my wife and sometimes grandchildren. That's and your practice is in San Francisco, correct? Yeah, right in San Francisco. Yeah, and I've heard you do some speaking engagements. You travel around the country speaking in Canada? Uh, a little bit. I don't, I don't like traveling that much, but... I, I do it sometimes. Okay. <laughs> well, Dr. Cowan, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you again for bringing attention to the importance of good traditional nutrition, so vital during pregnancy and childhood, which, you know, basically right. serves the foundation of our adult health. And I think yeah. so many mothers-to-be and, uh, you know, mothers of young children are missing these vital key components of our health. So, you know, thank you for writing the nourishing traditions of baby and child care to help inform okay. mothers about how to truly take care of their children. Great. Okay. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And thank you all you listeners out there for tuning in to the Live to 110 podcast. And I have a little announcement to make. I have about halfway finish point of my book, um, I haven't announced it yet, but I wanted to tell you about it today. It's a weight loss book that I'm writing, and it is called When Diet and Exercise Are Not Enough, The Roadblocks to Weight Loss. Because there's so many of my clients and uh, people emailing me and whatnot that tell me they just have such a hard time losing weight, and I absolutely identify with you as well because after I had my child, I had about 60 pounds to lose, and it was very daunting and 
this book kind of just details my own journey of all the pitfalls and the things I searched really hard to figure out why I wasn't losing the weight like I used to in my 20s. It was like that wouldn't have been a problem at all to lose 60 pounds. But when I, I hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. So I wanted to write this book to help you also identify your roadblocks to weight loss, the most common pitfalls that people face when they're trying to lose weight so that you can develop your plan and finally lose the weight and be at that that healthy weight that you should be at. Um, so hopefully the book will be done in about you know six to eight months. I want to do a really, really good job on it, and it will be available for sale on my website, live to 110com So thank you so much for listening.